Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom all is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to seal or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Ellie. Well, in the last 20 years or so, the idea of human flourishing has become very popular. Well, the idea is not a new one. In fact, the question of how do humans flourish is one of the oldest of human questions. What is new is how science is trying to study and quantify the concept of human flourishing. So now we have what is called the science of human flourishing. There's even a uh, program called the, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And this is just one of many of Ivy League schools and higher education's efforts to scientifically approach this subject. The stated mission of these programs is to take the subject of human flourishing, which has traditionally been discussed in philosophy and theology departments, and address it across a broader spectrum of study, especially scientific study. Departments like sociology, political science, economics, education, psychology, medicine, public health, and other empirical sciences. The hope is that there will be a greater understanding of human flourishing that will result in a very practical increase in human flourishing in America and across the world. This is important because many studies suggest that only about 17% of Americans meet the criteria of what we would call flourishing. And in fact, many, if not most, Americans are thought to be experiencing some form of depression. So, we are studying the effects of diet and exercise and job satisfaction, smoking, drinking, social relationships, social apps, and even participation in religious communities to try to determine how can humans flourish. Now, I find these studies really interesting. I think most people do, because we all have this question, what is the good life? How do we find it? And on a very personal level, how can I live a flourishing life? As we open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 16, we may ask, does the Bible have anything to say on this topic? And I think the answer to this question is most certainly yes. 
Because human flourishing is undoubtedly one of the major themes of the Bible. The Bible begins with God creating a world teeming with life, and his design was that life on earth would be fruitful and would multiply. He placed man in a well-watered garden, a flourishing place, with access to the tree of life in his very presence. He walked with them. It was the fall of man that removed us from the garden to the place of pain and frustration, the wilderness of thorns and thistles, dust and death. But the story does not end with the judgment of God. In fact, the Bible is the story of God because of his great love for us, because of his mercy, offering the world the possibility of a restoration to the garden, to the place of flourishing. God's work of blessing began with Abraham and his descendants, and it culminated in Jesus, who said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, there are many pictures of this abundant, flourishing life throughout the scriptures, And today we want to look at one of them in Psalm 16. Now the book of Psalms as a whole begins with a picture of flourishing in Psalm 1. It kind of sets the tone for the whole book of Psalms. We read of a godly person who meditates on God's word day and night, and they're they're described as being like a tree planted by streams of water that's always bearing fruit and its, its leaves never wither. This is certainly a picture of human flourishing. Now, Psalm 16 is a little less metaphoric than Psalm 1, and it gives us a very practical picture of what flourishing looks like for the godly person. So this is a Psalm of David, and I want to look at this Psalm this morning in three parts. First, a prayer in verse 1. Secondly, a Lord in verse 2. And then finally, a flourishing life in verses 3 to 11. And as we meditate together on this psalm, let's remember that it was written about 3,000 years ago. So we will need to crawl back into the mind of an ancient Jewish king to understand the original intent of this text. As we do that, we will see that the big idea he was trying to get across was this. The greatest human flourishing is found when we live in God's presence. The greatest human flourishing is found when we live in God's presence. So let's dive in here and look at the first part, a prayer in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David begins this psalm with a prayer to God, asking him to preserve him. Now, the word preserve means to keep or to guard. It's one of David's favorite words he uses in many psalms. He's asking God to protect him. Two questions immediately arise from this prayer. Why should God protect David? And what is he protecting him from? So first, why should God protect David? Well, the reason David gives is right there in verse 1, because I take refuge in you. Now, this is a bit of a strange bargain, isn't it? 
David doesn't put himself forward to God, asking him to, be, you know, to protect him because he's God's most important worshiper or because he promises to pay a huge sum of money or he's going to offer a thousand sacrifices. He's simply offering his need of refuge. And friends, this is always the most powerful plea when we pray to God, our humble acknowledgement of our need. The old hymn says it best, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. So that's why David says God should protect him. But secondly, what is the danger that David is facing? There's something David's concerned about that he needs God to protect him from. This is an important question that we need to answer. And I think the answer is found in verse 2. And this is what takes us to our second point, a Lord in verse 2. Notice what it says here. I say to the Lord, or to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Do you see the danger David fears here? It is the no good apart from you. David does not want to live away from Yahweh. He knows that there's nothing good in life without him. David here shifts from the general name for God to the covenant name of Yahweh. This is a very personal name for Jewish people. It's the name that God revealed to Moses when he was delivering them. It means I am. He is the one who delivered the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt and called them to be his special people. There's important history here. We get a little glimpse of this history in Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6 where God says to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice, to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was God's call to the Jewish people. This was his vision for them of what he wanted to accomplish by delivering them out of Egypt. But as you read the history of the Jewish people, you see that they had a tendency to turn away from Yahweh and run after other gods. And this wandering away from Yahweh always ended in disaster. This was always Israel's greatest danger, that they would not stay in their refuge and serve Yahweh as Lord. And every generation had to decide anew whether they would serve Yahweh or not. The best example of this was Joshua. After he led the people into the promised land at the end of the book of Joshua, he called his generation to make this decision as well. Notice Joshua 24, 15. And if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So David here in Psalm 16.2 is making it clear that his loyalty is to Yahweh. He, in his generation, as the king of Israel, he's going to serve Yahweh. He knows there's nothing good apart from Yahweh. And so we, we have to pause here for just a moment to notice that the Bible is making one of those uncomfortably exclusive statements. There is nothing good apart from God. 
Many people struggle with this in our pluralistic society, but this is the truth claim that the Bible is making. In modern language, we would say there is no ultimate human flourishing apart from life without God. Now, we won't hear this from the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard. The assumption is, for most people in the secular world, that we can find human flourishing without God, without reference to God. But we must ask, is this true, right? Do you believe it is true or not? God has given us the freedom to choose whether or not we want to follow him or want to choose another course. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how do I finish this sentence? I have no good apart from what? (laughs) David says God, right? So some questions for reflection this morning is, what is your good? Who is your Lord Who do you serve? Now, you may say, I don't have a Lord. That's really old language. We don't talk like that anymore, right? I don't serve anyone. I make my own decisions. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. My highest good is to express my individualism, my freedom. But it is clear, if you say that, that you are ultimately serving yourself as master. Your only God is yourself. And this is why the call of Jesus to us is first to deny yourself, then take up your cross and follow him, Matthew 8.34. So in Psalm 16, David is identifying Yahweh as his Lord. He does not want to live apart from him as he believes there's nothing good without him. And the prayer to preserve and protect him seems to be focused on keeping him close to Yahweh and asking Yahweh to stay close to him. It's a similar prayer, I think, that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer when he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because the greatest evil and temptation that we face is wandering away from God and thinking that there is something good out there for us apart from him. Now, in a positive sense in this in this psalm, David is praying that God will protect him in such a way that he will experience all the goodness there is in life in serving Yahweh as Lord. And so in the rest of the psalm here, he's going to detail all the good things he experiences as he stays close to Yahweh, actually living in his presence and as God preserves and protects him in this place of intimacy with God. In the old days, we'd call this the good life, But today, let's use the more modern language of a flourishing life. This is our third point, a flourishing life David's describing here in verses 3 through 11. And I think he identifies four aspects of a flourishing life here. So let's begin with the first one, and that is a holy and excellent people in verses 3 to 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, The sorrows of those who have run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now David here finds great delight in the saints in the land. Now the word saints literally means holy ones. And there's really no doubt as to who he's referring to here. And it's it's not the same as what we typically think of as like the super Christians or maybe the, the saints that the Catholic Church has identified. 
And notice here that, that David does not say the Jews, I, you know, as for the Jews are in the land. He's not just talking about all Jews in general. The saints, the holy ones, was a subset of the Jews. What is often referred to in other parts of the Old Testament as, as a remnant of the Jewish people. Just like today, we might distinguish between everyone who identifies as a Christian and those who actually live holy lives. You see, Yahweh was calling the Jewish people to be a holy people, not a perfect people, but one that sought to be faithful to him and obey his good laws that he had given them. But not all the Jews were faithful to this calling or even tried to be. So when David says, Yahweh is my Lord, he is identifying himself with those who will seriously seek to obey his commands and follow his ways. Again, not perfectly, but earnestly and sincerely in a way that their life actually begins to grow in holiness in a way that can be seen and observed by other people. The saints, then, are David's people. They also have made the same commitment that he has to serve Yahweh as Lord. And David says they are the excellent ones. This word excellent means majestic, mighty, and magnificent. David has observed that those in the land who were faithful to Yahweh and had lived holy lives experienced the blessing of Yahweh upon them as an excellent and majestic people. They were, they were Yahweh's very own special people. Now there is another people that he identifies here as those who run after other gods. Far from being majestic and mighty people, David observes that they have increasing sorrow. And David distances himself from them and makes it clear that he is not going to run with them or participate in their celebrations, or take the names of their gods on his lips. And so some questions for us to reflect on from these verses is, who are your people? Do your people increase your holiness, your excellence, and your joy? Or do they increase your sorrow? This is one of the reasons that we practice meaningful membership here at Redemption Church. God is calling us to be his holy and excellent people, and we are seeking his blessing and to display his excellence to the world around us. And so we encourage one another to follow Jesus and experience the flourishing life he offers to us. And we hold one another accountable so that if we or brother or sister are, are living a sinful lifestyle, we'll call it out because we know there's nothing good there. It only leads to sorrow. And living in sin is not consistent with Jesus' call to us to live a holy life so that we can experience all that God, all the goodness that God has for us in this life. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. He gives a vision for us as Christians as to the kind of people we're supposed to be. He says, but, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." So part of this flourishing life is being a member of a holy and excellent people of God, which today we call 
the church. The second mark of the flourishing life is a beautiful inheritance in verses five through six. David writes, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, for Jews, the promised land was divided up by tribes and families, by lot. You read the story in the Old Testament, and and this was their portion, their cup, their inheritance that was to be passed on from generation to generation. That's the language that David is using here, but he's not focusing on a beautiful piece of land inherited from his father. Rather, he's focusing on Yahweh himself as his beautiful inheritance. David had knowledge of and access to the one true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth. God was his keeper, his protector, his guardian, and, and, and he's blessing him through all life. Far greater than any land or wealth, David is here delighting in Yahweh as his pleasant and beautiful inheritance. We know that David was the eighth and youngest son of a poor family. He probably didn't stand to inherit much from his father, if anything. But here he exalts in his rich and beautiful inheritance of God himself. And so a question for us this morning is, what is your inheritance? Maybe your parents or grandparents have left you a nice inheritance of wealth or houses or land. Or maybe they've left you little or nothing. Whether it's a lot or a little or nothing, by human standards, in Christ, we have all been given the same beautiful inheritance inheritance that David speaks of here, which is the Lord himself. This is what Paul tries to, to show us in Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. He says, in him or in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, there's a lot of words here that are hard to understand, right? It's kind of hard to grasp this. That's why the Apostle Paul, later in this same chapter in Ephesians 1, is going to pray that the Christians he was writing to would be able to comprehend and understand what are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints, Have you ever been overwhelmed by the reality that you get to know Jesus? Have you ever asked, God, why did you choose me? How did I get to be so fortunate? Brothers and sisters, God is our beautiful family inheritance. May he overwhelm us with this reality. Thirdly, Divine counsel and instruction are part of this flourishing life that David's talking about here in verse 7. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. You know, good and beneficial counsel is often hard to come by, isn't it? And certainly all human counsel has its limits. David surrounded himself with the wisest men he could find in his kingdom, and I'm, I'm sure that he valued their counsel. But here in this psalm, he identifies the counsel that he valued most highly. That was God's counsel. 
Now, how did David receive God's counsel? We read that there were prophets like Samuel and other prophets in his day that spoke the word of the Lord. There were priests who had certain ways of inquiring of God. But I think David reveals in the Psalms that he primarily received God's counsel through God's word. If you've ever read Psalm 119, you know it's 149 verses of just David telling us how much he loves God's word and delights in it. Psalm 119 verse 24 is just one example. David says this, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And so God's word was a treasure to David that gave him the counsel that led to this flourishing life. Now, the second part of verse 7 is really interesting. It talks about instruction in the night. And the word here for instruction has a firmness that's probably better translated chasten or rebuke. In the night, my heart chastens me. My heart rebukes me. And the word night probably refers to dark and difficult times of life, the, the dark nights of our soul. And so what David is most likely describing is God's loving but necessarily difficult disciplining of his children that brings needed and blessed changes in our lives. This is a, a common experience that we all probably have had as Christians, right? We, we talk about the darkest and most difficult times of life by saying things like, I wouldn't want to go through that again, but I'm so thankful for that time in my life because God used it to teach me things he couldn't have taught me otherwise. See, we say with David, I bless Yahweh who counsels me and chastens me in the night. And so some questions for our reflection from this verse is, what is your best source of counsel? Where do you look for guidance? What voice instructs your heart in the night? Certainly, if we are to know God's counsel, we must know his word. John Piper is known as saying, I never met a mature Christian who was not steeped in scripture. And so as we absorb our minds in scripture, God uses his word to counsel and instruct us, especially in dark and difficult times of life. So fourth and finally, the fourth mark here of a flourishing life is just kind of everything thrown together here, security, gladness, and joy in this life and the next. Notice verses 8 through 11. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. David here magnificently pictures what a flourishing life is like when lived in God's presence, with him always beside him. Certainly there can be no better description of human flourishing than the security and the gladness and the joy pictured here in the presence of God. And this is the answer to the prayer of verse 1 as David intentionally places Yahweh before him. 
always practicing, we would say, practicing the presence of God in his life, and, and gladness and joy flood his mind and his body in the security of knowing that nothing can shake him with Yahweh right beside him. And so here we clearly see that from a biblical point of view, the pursuit of human flourishing is the pursuit of intimacy with God. Or as we said in our big idea for today, the greatest human flourishing is found when we live in God's presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And so some questions for reflection from these verses are, what makes your heart glad? What makes your whole being rejoice? How does your body feel secure? What brings you peace? What brings you rest? What brings you a sense of security? Our friend King David is here recommending God to us and that apart from God, we cannot find these good things, or at least in their fullness. Now, in the midst of this high point of the psalm and maybe one of the high points of Scripture itself, there is this very interesting verse that is one of the few Old Testament verses that speak of the life to come. And it's quoted in the New Testament by both Peter and Paul. It's verse 10 that says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And after quoting this verse, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, if you, if you study much, you know there's a lot of discussion about this verse and how to read it correctly. But I think Peter's point is clear. David could not have been referring to himself in, in chapter 16, verse 10, as the Holy One who would not see corruption. If David was talking about himself, then the, the, the psalm would not be true, right? But, but what the New Testament authors are trying to say is that David wasn't talking about himself as the Holy One who wouldn't see corruption, but he was prophetically seeing his descendant Jesus as the one who would not see corruption. This is what Paul says in Acts 13, verse 36. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with us, or with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption corruption. And so the New Testament authors saw this verse as a prophecy of David about Jesus. God revealed to David that he would not abandon his soul to Sheol or the grave, and the proof was this that of, of this would be that God's holy one would not see corruption. And so this is the confidence that Jesus' resurrection gives to us today, just as it did to David prophetically as he was looking into the future that God raised Jesus, the, the Holy One, from the dead, and just like he was, so we will be raised. We will not be abandoned to Sheol when we die. We have hope of resurrection and eternal life. And this actually becomes the focus of our ultimate hope of flourishing, right? 
that our hope of flourishing in the life beyond this life, there will be a place, a time, an existence where the barriers to God's presence are finally and completely removed and God will again dwell with us as human beings in a renewed heaven and earth. I love verse 11. It's just kind of a summary verse for the whole psalm. As David contemplates his life in the presence of God and even begins to think of life beyond the grave, he confidently declares his faith and delight in Yahweh. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So as we close this morning, let me just, let's just talk a little bit about a few takeaways from this psalm for our life today, in our culture today, 3,000 years later after this was written. And the first takeaway I'd like to think about with you is that biblical and secular flourishing are fundamentally different. Now, please know that as I talk about these comparisons, I do so as a fan of the modern science of human flourishing. Those who know me know I like, I like to read these things. I like to study these things. I like to learn from these things. I, I, I like the latest information on, on diet and exercise. I try to implement these things in my life. And I would say, to great benefit, insights from the science of human flourishing can improve the quality of our life. And it's, it's wise to heed these things. But... At their very best, we might say that these insights and these practices may, may be no more than arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> they are external tweaks to our lives that cannot come close to the regeneration and internal transformation of the human soul that only God can bring when we are restored to an intimate relationship with him. And I think it's important, we have to be careful not to misunderstand Christianity for just another self-help tweaking of our life. It's really not intended to be that. Making more money, a bigger retirement fund, sleeping a little better, losing weight, eating better, avoiding too much social media, career success, job satisfaction, and many other things like these, all good things. But things I think we would agree are qualitatively different to the recommendations that we're, we're reading about in Psalm 16, like belonging to the holy people of God, having God as your inheritance, uh, as your counselor, and in whose presence is gladness and fullness of joy itself. Science cannot understand why Christians will gladly give up health and wealth and homes and jobs and even family to follow Christ. Because these are the things that from a scientific perspective comprise the flourishing life of the secular person. Many Christian martyrs in the world today would not be described as flourishing human beings from a scientific perspective. They suffer immensely just for following Jesus. And if this life is all there is, there's no resurrection, as Paul said, we are of all men, as Christians, most to be pitied. But if Jesus has been raised, all the world's calculations are turned upside down, and Jesus' words ring true in Mark 8, 35-37. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and forfeit his soul. Jesus is not calling for external tweaks to our lives. He is calling for total abandonment of all else for him because he alone can give abundant life. And so this is our final takeaway this morning. There is no ultimate human flourishing apart from Jesus. This is the truth claim that the Bible makes and all must decide whether to believe it or not. So all we have as Christians is Jesus. He is everything. There is flourishing in him and only in him. And apart from him, there can be no flourishing. Jesus said it best in John 15, I am the vine. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus alone is the source of fruitfulness in life. Have you come to believe this? And maybe even more importantly, have you come to experience this? Have you discovered what the, disci- what the disciples had discovered when Jesus asked him if they wanted to leave him too, as, Carl, or, I'm sorry, as John read in our call to worship this morning? The disciples answered Jesus in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. With Jesus is all our fruitfulness and flourishing. There is nothing good for us apart from him. And so we pray with David in Psalm 16.1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Jesus, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we do thank you for these beautiful words of Psalm 16, and we just ask that you would make these truths a reality in our lives. Lord, may we know intimacy with you, and the joy, and the peace, and security, and gladness that comes from that. May you be our vision, Lord, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.